It's O seven three seven Hawaiian Aleutian Standard Time. This is Omar WJ show. Omar WJ speaking. I um, found some stuff and I recorded it. And um, hope you're entertained. It's supposed to be partly sunny today. I don't know the high, but you know, wear a hat and you'll be okay. Um, I know the sea temperature was high north of Hawaii. I can't remember how high it was, but I was really surprised. Um, this other crew member disparaged me for, um, doing the weather. So, uh, I'm going to cut to the news here, cut to the show. Okay, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Okay, what happened to my... I was going to record this thing about... What's his name? The head guy over there. Um... Saudi Arabia has been on a spending spree, paying megastar footballer Cristiano Ronaldo a reported $200 million to play with Saudi club Al Nasser. At the press conference announcing his signing earlier this year, Ronaldo said his work in Europe was done. I won everything. I played the most important clubs in Europe. And for me now is a new, new challenge. I'm glad for that. Al-Nasser gave me this opportunity to, to show and develop not only for the, for the football, but also for the generation, the young generation, the women's generation as well. Saudi Arabia has bought its way into England's Premier League. It's created a rival to the PGA Golf Tour. And despite its climate, it's landed the 2029 Asian Winter Games. In the Crown Prince's telling, putting Saudi sport squarely on the global stage is one way to modernize, to pave the way for a post-oil world, to draw tourists and investors. But many are saying it's nothing more than sports washing. So Saudi Arabia's been sinking billions of dollars into domestic and international sport. Miranda Mitra is international editor at The Economist. This is all part of a drive to try and diversify their economy. This is part of the Vision 2030 plan, which they've been pursuing for a few years now. Critics say that, no, that's only part of the story. Um, Really, this is about the kingdom trying to detract from its human rights record. Broadly, how is the money being spent? If you look at football, that's a particularly flashy example. Um, The Saudi Pro League, which starts its 23-24 season this weekend, used to be a relatively quiet backwater. And then this weekend, we're going to see some real superstars starting to play in that league. We saw Cristiano Ronaldo move to that league earlier in the year, but now we're going to have former Real Madrid striker Karim Benzema joining him and Golo Kante and various other major talents. A Saudi-led group of investors also owns Newcastle United in the English Premier League and that season is also getting underway but it's not just football that Saudi Arabia is interested in, they are big sponsors in Formula One, cycling there are talks going on about tennis, there have been some very big bouts of boxing, there will be more, so it's a a real sort of scattergun of investments across the board. Why is that? Why does Saudi Arabia think this is the thing to be doing? A lot of it links
links back to that attempt at diversifying their economy away from oil. But also some of this may be about the vanity of Saudi elites, many of whom are big sports fans. And there may be rivalry with neighbours in on this as well. Qatar and the UAE are also interested and big sports investors. And obviously Qatar held its big World Cup in December last year. So the region is starting to get more known for its sports investments, its sports activities, um, and it's becoming a bit of a hub. So as you say, partly about envy and partly about running sport as a business for the country. Yes, and there are also some social elements to this as well. In recent years, Saudi Arabia has made some social reforms. We finally saw that women were allowed to drive in 2018. And as part of that change and as part of the Vision 2030 plan, which is trying to also get more women into the labor force, we've seen backing for women's sports in the kingdom. And uh, FIFA actually gave the Saudi Arabian women's team its first FIFA ranking earlier this year. So a little bit of trying to even things up and possibly there's a thought that that will make it more attractive for female tourists and other other female visitors to go. Two questions there about whether it will work financially and whether it will accomplish its social goals. Let's start with the money. Is this a smart plan, do you reckon? This whole plan, I think, faces two big risks and the first is obviously that its business models may not work. Saudi Arabia's had some success with Newcastle already. We saw it escape the relegation zone and then obviously it's going to be playing in the Champions League this season, which is you know fantastic for fans. But across the board, they're now paying a lot of these sporting megastars absolutely enormous sums of money. And domestically, Saudi Arabia's got to try and ensure that in its Saudi Pro League, it doesn't face some of the same problems that China had when it tried to revamp its own domestic football league in the past decade or so. With China, you saw, for example, some of the big names grumbling about the standard of football. And then another problem that Saudi Arabia might have in all of this is that the size of its population, the size of its domestic audience for these sports and these sporting events is relatively small. It's a population of 36 million people. And you mentioned two risks. What's the second? So the other risk is obviously that Saudi Arabia faces a big backlash from a lot of this investment. Sport can be a very sensitive industry in which to invest. And Saudi Arabia's status as an autocratic state complicates its investments in sport. Critics point to its dearth of democratic freedoms, its suppression of women's and gay rights. No one's forgotten the gruesome murder of Jamal Khashoggi a few years ago. And of course, there's the role of Saudi Arabia in, in the war in Yemen. Several human rights groups and others have accused. The- okay, I don't know what happened there, but... um. Let me see. Okay. Um, I guess that's finished. Um, This is, um, and say about in Saudi Arabia, you can get killed for being gay. But that said, I've also heard it's one of the best places to be a homosexual. So figure that one out. Um, and this is uh, a second show. This is a show I was listening to years ago. Never got to listen to the end of it. Okay, here we go. Okay, let me get this plan.
of the FBI's failure on September 11th. There was, after the horror of September 11th, the inevitable question, did anyone in the government know? Very, very clear sometime in January, 
And one of the agents asked me if he could take the blindfold off Yusef. And I said, sure, go right ahead. And it was ironic because as he finally focused his eyes, uh, we were right adjacent to the World Trade Center. Um, and he kind of focused in on that. And of course, one of the agents sitting next to him gave him a little bit of a nudge and said, you see, it still stands. And, and Yusuf, in no uncertain terms, uh, said it would not have been had we had more funding. And, and I looked at him at that point, and really this the way that he said that, the, the coldness of it, uh, is something that I'll probably never forget. For the next six years, O'Neill and his agents would follow the bloody and complex trail from Ramsey Youssef to Osama bin Laden. They painstakingly pieced together bits of information gathered from sources around the world. Sources who would sometimes become close friends. One of them was a journalist. He was one of those rare birds that on the inside of government who had access to highly classified information and yet also understood that talking to a journalist was not necessarily a violation of any rules and it could actually be helpful on both sides. In analyzing the information about Ramsey Youssef, Aisham said his friend O'Neill saw a different sort of terrorist with a new kind of mission. The picture was still fuzzy. I mean, it was by no means sharp. That there was an emerging global Islamic fundamentalist terrorist network that was becoming more and more engaged in the objective of attacking American targets. When Yusuf fled from the Trade Center bombing in 1993, among the places he went, uh, really right before he was apprehended in Pakistan, was to the Philippines, where he was mixing the bombs to blow up you know, 12 jumbo jets in a 48-hour period and was not far away from at least attempting uh, to carry out that plot, which would have resulted in thousands of deaths in two days. For Agent O'Neill, the trail of Ramsey Youssef was an introduction into the sophisticated and interconnected world of the new terrorism. We now know that he was planning an operation to crash a dozen American airliners virtually simultaneously with bombs. Now, one version of this, I believe from the Philippines, has it that he was planning on crashing one of the 12, not in the Pacific, but into the CIA headquarters in Okay, so got six minutes into that. Um, I'm going to record the rest of the um, Frontline show. And um, I'm going to um, post it. So let's see. Um... Let me look at the weather here real quick for you. Um, K-O-H, K-H-O-N-2. K- Kilo Hotel Oscar November. Feels like 28. Humidity is 65%. Wind is east-northeast 18. Sunset is 7.03. So get up. You're losing daylight. High is supposed to be 31 degrees today, partly cloudy, and a new tropical disturbance to potentially increase winds again. Okay, so that was 10 hours ago. Um, I lived, uh, excuse me, your podcaster, 
lived on the Gulf Coast from, not continuously, but um, um, from, from 1987, August, to, um, and then visited in May of, of, 1995 to get his the diploma also sailed in between like a two and a half years sorry for the autobiographical information anyway i'm not an expert but um hurricanes move randomly weather is random um and um primary mission of um, Omar WJ show is to entertain. Secondary mission is to instruct. Lastly, gonna try to save the next generation, like um, um, my son and his half sisters.